0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey as a jurisdiction, as many of our regular listeners will be well aware, is seriously committed to the Sustainable Finance agenda. We're fully engaged on the global policy agenda and members of several United Nations EP programmes. And as part of our international engagement and policy discussions, we have this Green Finance podcast. Hello, my name's Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy here at Guernsey Finance, and I chair our Sustainable Finance group. Today I'm delighted to be speaking to Lynn Tomlinson, Head of Impact and Philanthropy at Casanova Capital. In fact, in introducing Lynn, I do remember it's actually it's been a couple of months since we uh, shared a, a webinar with uh, Step Asia. How are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm great, thank you, Andy, very pleased to be here.
0: Well it's great to have you back. I mean that, that step Asia uh, webinar that we did which was around private capital financing sustainability, Uh, went down a storm actually and particularly out in Asia where we talked about um, fiduciary duty and governance particularly for family offices and structure structuring around private wealth Um, it was really well received and and since that webinar we've uh, actually published our own report here at Guernsey Finance sustainable investing for family offices uh, which was guidance um, around sustainable trustee which we published in December it was looking looking at the role of the duty of the trustee uh, fiduciary duty, and we identified that some family offices, you know, some of the issues that might need to look at um, if they were concerned about conflict with sustainable investing. And on that point, because it was something that came up in our webinar, I thought we'd start off uh, today with maybe asking you your view on that subject of fiduciary duty, and have you seen any unlocking of this potential conflict?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I think it's worth highlighting for the audience, Andy, that um, Casanova work with a very wide range of professional and private trustees and their advisors across both um, private clients, so family offices, but also charities. Um, And therefore, this belief that sustainable investing conflicts with fiduciary duty comes up quite a lot, (laughs) you won't be surprised to hear. Um, But I think, you know, firstly, with these things, it's always important to understand what's at the root cause of the beliefs. Um, And in my experience, there are two main reasons that we're often um, given of the perceived conflict and firstly that investing sustainably significantly restricts your investment universe and therefore your returns and secondly that it increases volatility and risk. And I think in certain respects, those beliefs um, could be argued to be true if we look back 20 years rather than being forward looking. So and the reason that I say that is if um, if as trustees you were looking to invest responsibly around 10, 20 years ago, your options would have been pretty limited. You would have been excluding certain sectors, whether that's arms, fossil fuels, alcohol, tobacco, for example. Um, And there's no doubt that trustees who had done this would have experienced um, short-term underperformance in the past. But I think if we look forward, you know, there's an argument to say, are those really areas of the market where we're going to um, give investors um, the opportunities for growth? Um, But secondly, I think those sectors would traditionally have been seen as very defensive types of investments. They'd be good dividend payers. And in addition, it would have been very difficult to fully replicate a discretionary portfolio in the bonds and alternative space while sticking to a very restrictive, restrictive, responsible mandate. And what that would have meant for trustees is that they would have had to carry more equity risk in portfolios than they would like and they probably would have had some uncomfortable um, experiences at certain points. And so I think it's really, really important that we acknowledge that there are valid concerns um, that people are raising. But I think of equal importance is that those beliefs are really based on what happens in the past rather than looking towards the future. And the way that I look at it is um, if we're looking forward now with fiduciary duty in mind, and we're thinking that fiduciary duty is very much concerned with assessing all material risks that are applicable and the general duty to act in the best interest of all beneficiaries, many of them who may be multi-generational, you know, We believe that there are significant financial risks for companies that relate to the costs that they're externalizing on society. And that currently those social and environmental costs, they're borne by governments and society more broad, broadly rather than the companies that are partially responsible for them. And at some stage, those costs will be internalized onto a company's balance sheet, either through taxation or regulation or consumer change in preferences. And so if we need to identify those risks, Because they're absolutely fundamental to anyone's fiduciary duty, whether you're an asset manager like Casanova or you're a a private or a professional trustee. And I think. You know the materiality point. You know, in terms of are these risks material? There's some pretty scary statistics out there around this. I mean, Tobel issued a piece of analysis recently from MSCI that suggested that between 4 to 14% of companies, depending on what market they're listed on, have no value if their climate risks are accurately priced in. And these so-called climate zombies, you know, operate across a, a wide range of industries, and they're there lurking in client portfolios. And so, therefore, for any trustee who is really concerned about fulfilling their fiduciary duty, they should be at a minimum um, considering the climate value at risk in their portfolios and and implementing an investment strategy that mitigates those risks. Um, in terms of how they implement that strategy without compromising returns, we've now got some really, really strong evidence that sustainable mandates perform as well, and in certain circumstances outperform traditional investment approaches. And what we found with our sustainable portfolio, certainly in recent periods of market stress, such as 2018 and 2020, is that they actually provided more protection on the downside of markets, and they participated in growth throughout this recent crisis. And I think one of the reasons that we can we can achieve these um, these returns is due to the significant innovation that you will also have seen in markets over the past five years, both in terms of the volume and quality of product on the supply side. And what that means for an investor such as Casanova is that we can almost perfectly replicate our house investment views in sustainable portfolios for clients across region, asset class and sector. So, you know, taking away some of those challenges for the trustees around increased risk and you know, inability to diversify etc. And I think another point to note is that exclusions only really restrict a universe by around 6% of the global equity market and our research shows that whilst making exclusions can sometimes um, lead to short term differences in performance. Over the long term, it doesn't impede on financial performance. And if we think about that in the context of fiduciary duty, most private and professional trustees, they're duty bound to consider their duties to future beneficiaries over multi generations, and therefore they absolutely should not be looking at what's happening over the short term, and they can afford to take that longer term view. And finally, I just wanted to highlight that There's so much opportunity for investors in the sustainable sector, whether that's investing in well run global sustainable businesses that take account of all their stakeholders or investing in some of these very strong themes, such as the energy transition, how we're going to provide sustainable agriculture, water, et cetera, um, for the world as we transition to a lower carbon economy so that you can actually whilst considering fiduciary duty, you would do well to assess both the current social and environmental risks in your portfolio, but also make sure that those portfolios are positioned for growth in the future across those very um, important sectors for
0: investors. I say Lynn, that was, uh, I mean, I, I was furiously trying to write all that down until I realised <laughs> we were recording this. <laughs> I mean that was just the most comprehensive, and greatest answer I've heard on, on that point. You know that, that that point you make about the material risk, about discounting into the future, it really does distil down how and why ESG factors are relevant to the uh, to the fiduciary duty. Um, so you know, thanks for that. But you you also make that point about the the discounting uh, you know on the climate side of risks, you know, the, the zombie the zombie assets, as it were. Um, and I think if you refer back to, you go back to when, you remember when um, uh, Mark Kearney sort of did the tragedy of the horizon speech, and it really was the fact that investors hadn't got a long enough horizon to appreciate Uh, you know pricing in those risks over that long term with regards to climate and Divya Shashami we've had on the podcast before makes the very same point about the fact that if you're to price in those risks now some of these assets are actually worthless people just haven't realized that yet Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean yeah like I said that's yeah, I am going to go back and and, lead, and write that down. And I actually think, there's, I just want to thank you so much. Remember, we could stop the podcast there and say, do you know what? We've hit the nail on the head of <laughs> what that point is, but let's, let's move on for the purposes of you know, maybe more than five minutes. But no, but honestly, that was, you know, that was incredibly succinct uh, uh, points that you made there. But coming onto sort of climate change, I think it helps me sort of maybe to ask my second question, which is sort of a bit of a segue actually. It's, I'm looking at current US politics. Obviously, there's been a lot of sea change uh, very recently. Obviously, with Joe Biden coming in, with the with the changing on the green agenda, particularly you know re-signing up to Paris, etc. But ironically, for a lot of people, I think probably unaware of, in terms of this fiduciary duty issue, the United Nations actually ran a um, well, is a major campaign uh, by the United Nations, uh, and actually was fronted by Al Gore. Something else that he you know contributed to the world for global good, as it were. Um, and under the Obama administration, there's quite some move, movements forward, um, and you know there was some, as you say, slowing down of this issue under fiduciary duty with the with, with the, the previous US administration. Some proposals uh, about how to incorporate or how to, to to assess fiduciary duty there. Do you see the current Biden presidency um, sort of being positive for, for for the general agenda, both you know fiduciary and climate?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, our assessment is that the Biden presidency is overwhelmingly positive for the climate and sustainability in general. And you don't need to be a huge investment house like Shaders to have come up with that assessment. But I think um, <laughs> the way that we've looked <laughs> at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what we do think is that the narrow margin of, of The the votes means that some of his climate ambitions, such as the two trillion dollar clean energy and infrastructure project, could be trimmed back, for example. But what's really important is that his signalling, such as rejoining the Paris climate agreement and the intent is absolutely that climate change is high on his list of priorities. And so it's basically a 180 degree U-turn on the Trump administration, which, in my opinion, is only a good thing, really. Um, But what we're hoping is that Biden's influence is seen across many federal agencies, such as the Environmental Protection Agency. And the SEC. And what's really encouraging is that the appointments that he's made so far um, signal a a concerted government-wide response to climate change. You know, for example, the appointment of Janet Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary, who has been a long-term supporter herself of climate action and carbon pricing. And um, together with the Federal Reserve joining that um, the network for greening the financial system, Yellen will have, we think, a strong mandate to incorporate climate risk into core oversight responsibilities across financial regulators. And, and from our perspective, we think that can only be a good thing for sustainable investing and that sort of broader macro level.
0: And, and again, that's I like, said, an overwhelming positive, quite clearly, but um, just staying with that for this reduce, you just for one moment longer, um, because you mentioned climate change risk in, in your first question and, and then just with respect to the US. A lot of these drivers seem to be around climate change risks. Um, could you maybe touch on um, how we, you know you approach this in your own client portfolio? Um, is there any variation in it when you maybe look at things from a you know professional or a private trustee basis, or a different types of uh, different different types of client, or is it you know just mainly the generic approach that you um, referred to uh, when we started?
1: Yeah. So so from our perspective, there's no difference between. Um private and professional trustees or clients in terms of how we report and measure risks because we think it's it's a fundamental part of investment management now and um, previously investors considered risk and return and there's this sort of third dimension impact and And we've invested in a huge amount, as an organization showed us, in a proprietary tool, which is um, called SustainX. And what SustainX does is it calculates the cost to society of over 10,000 companies, not just based on their carbon risk, but all environmental and social costs. And essentially what SustainX allows us to do is is understand what positive and negative impacts a company generates and turn that into a bill or credit that they would be handed each year if all of those true costs were valued. Um, And if you think about a company and how it interacts with its various stakeholders, it has a range of positive and negative impacts. So on the positive side, you know, we could say the wages it pays, the people it employs, if it employs them well, and the tax it pays, and sometimes the product that it generates, whether that's medicine, water, connectivity, etc., can be a positive to society. On the negative side, it will have a carbon footprint, that's always negative. Um, they can try to avoid tax, they can create poor jobs and have weak diversity or the products that they produce can have significant negative costs to, to society and the typical one, you know, the ones that are very common um, and very costly are tobacco arms, fossil fuels, etc. I mean, the global cost of tobacco is estimated at $1.7 trillion. So um, sustainex measures all of those impacts and it uses over 400 pieces of academic research and multiple sources of data points and that really helps us as investors to understand the true costs and then what we can do with that is aggregate that to clients at their portfolio level and show them where the risks lie and it's also a great source of engage- engagement because as we know no company's perfect even those that score well will always have areas they can improve upon whether that's either through their environmental or their social um, policies.
0: Oh, as an economist that's me this is oh, originally a trained economist it sounds like there's there's a lot of measurement of externalities going on there and it's quite a sophisticated this sustainability quite a sophisticated tool i mean was it a long time in coming in, in the development
1: Yes, yeah, so shoulders have invested in this over many, many years, and it's fundamental to being used in, in all the investment desks. And um, they put a huge amount of resource into it. And um, I'm sure they'd be very happy to talk to you about the mechanics behind it, because as you can imagine, there's some beautiful minds over in shoulders that are pulling all this together. And uh, that's <laughs> way beyond me, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. Old Nash equilibrium's there, right? Let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Inside as economist, Joe, I guess. But uh, I actually, no. And, and to be fair, the uh, I, I have actually been in, you know, be, been in your office, and and, and had you know, been given sort of uh, briefings on the way that, that, that various different tools have been put in place in the past obviously you guys being a signature to the PRI and when we were developing our green fund regime, you guys, obviously one of the principles of PRI is that you help other people, you know, and that's, mm. it's one of those nice sort of karma-esque type sort of principles that when you explain to people what the PRI are all about, they go, oh, that sounds, you know, it's really old fashioned, isn't it? it Trying to make the world a better place. Well, yes, that's what it's about, guys. <laughs> um, but you know, you guys are really, really helpful in that, you know, it's one of many um, sort of in helping us. So um, yeah, really impressive stuff. But that broad, So that broad impact, that broad, um, you know, that broad measurement, the aggregates and stuff like that, you sort of then into again, I suppose, for me, starting to stray into what I'd call the DSG sort of factors. You know, these these broader issues that, at the moment, I mean, if ESG is attracting attracting so much attention, you know, it's almost like you can't. You metaphorically open uh, draw oh, draw um, open a book or a magazine but you don't do it anymore but you know switch on your iPad without any esG story being immediately prompted to to, to, to read and follow um it, you know in terms of what your clients are seeing from this this perspective what what is their most important um you know most important priority I mean I like I said I switched the iPad on and all I'm getting is esG just shoveled in my face but is that really what they're concerned about are they concerned about is it is its impact? Is it ESG? Is it sustainable investing? You know what's the what's the real you know, priority for your clients?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I mean, we can all be. Um you know, fall victim to our own positive feedback loops can't we? I mean my LinkedIn feed is nothing but as you can imagine ESG and sustainability but um, but I think we are actually seeing um, significant interest in our, in our clients actually around these issues and um, we increased our sustainable assets by a huge amount over the past 12 months and that wasn't just new clients coming to us because of our sustainability capabilities, there was a significant amount of people who were moving who were already clients into more sustainable mandates. In terms of the conversations that we're having with clients, um, they are obviously concerned about the environment, but but what the pandemic has highlighted is the severe negative impacts that that people globally um, are having. Incurred and this growing dispersion of wealth and that makes some people uncomfortable. As one of my clients who's been giving away huge amounts of money every year to charity said to me last week, you know, thanks to Casanova and others, um, efforts over the past 12 months I seem to be getting richer and richer and everyone else is suffering and that just doesn't feel right and I think that awareness is rising and that is driving people's behavior. I think it's a bit like what we're seeing in certain sectors, such as retail, that the pandemic's accelerated um, change that was coming anyway. So, and we're actually seeing it with our own client base That 2020 seems to have been that real watershed year where people are actually starting to take action rather than um, you know rather than just talk about things and I think this is because there's this sense of urgency that the climate change poses a bigger risk than the current pandemic and that's driven by both climate and social issues in terms of are people concerned about impact ESG, sustainable investing and we actually undertook a client survey at the back of 2020 and we asked them just that question that you've posed we we're really trying to find out where our clients sat on that spectrum of sustainability So we surveyed over a thousand of them, covering a broad range of segments, so different wealth brackets, private clients, charities, professional trustees, etc. What was really interesting from that is that all but the minority thought that we should be integrating environmental and social and governance factors into account when making investments absolutely a standard. Um, but key for me is that over 50% wanted to go further. They wanted to move beyond what we, you and I would understand as ESG investment towards sustainable and impact investing, and really with a focus of making a positive impact on people and the planet with their capital. Uh, the standout for me was that some clients even said can't believe it that they were interested in making an impact and and would accept a lower return in pursuit of this. And that's really amazing to witness because we've got some amazing sustainable capabilities, but we aren't a boutique in it, sustainable manager who only looks after clients who are very very environmentally and socially conscious so and we have over 65 billion pounds of assets under management for, a, for that very broad range of clients and what I think that shows to me is that was a great um, sort of temperature check if you like for the demand for sustainability across our industry more broadly.
0: Well, that's an interesting, <laughs> an interesting point about in your clothes, because I, I regularly make the point uh, myself and sort of say, well, let's not forget that you know, in terms of the owners of private wealth, number one priority is capital preservation and growth, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, you know, it's, so it's interesting to hear. And one does hear those apocryphal stories, you know, that there are, you know, people out there that, you know, are willing to, to trade off that return from uh, uh, from impact. but. Um, yeah, I mean, I presume it's all on a confidential basis. You know, mm. no, no names are uh, required. Yes, as exactly. well. Yeah. On that, you make you make that point about that spectrum there and such. You I sort of. I just want to stick on the 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 ESG um, point just for one moment in terms of reporting and process. Do you do you find that clients, uh, in terms of what they're looking for, in terms of reporting reporting do you think that um, sort of what I call a board of standards and, uh, and rules and frameworks that's out there, it maybe can, it risks getting in the way of just doing a good job?
1: Well, I think it's important that we do measure um, and report to our clients on the impact the investments are having. And, and one thing that we have done in terms of our priorities for this year is we are actually providing clients with a snapshot in their quarterly report. In terms of the carbon emissions of their portfolio relative to the benchmark, but also using that Sustain Next tool, what the social um, impacts are. So, in our sustainable portfolios, for example, our companies are five times more um, socially. Um, have a five times more social value than the the benchmark and you would expect that because we're avoiding harm by excluding fossil fuels and tobacco arms and alcohol etc and we're investing in those better quality sustainable businesses that are paying fairer wages um, for example whilst we're also in the sustainable mandate seeking out companies that contribute to solutions to environmental and social challenges whether that's water or medicine so you would naturally expect that but being able to report that is a great way to start that conversation because for some people um, their scores won't look as good um, and for others that you know they will look very very um, favorable and it, it but it gives us a starting point and I think there's a difference between us complying with all the standards and then translating that into something that people who aren't working in this industry can take and then and from a practical perspective understand what their investments are actually doing and then also that gives us a great benchmark to say well look if you're not happy with this and we want to move to a more sustainable this is the improvement that you can see and it just takes people um, along that sustainability spectrum from ESG through to through to impact so it's really important part of of, of investment management going forward I think but it's not without its challenges as we all know.
0: So, I mean, talking about words into your mouth, but for summarising and simplifying things for your clients in the language they understand, and you know, taking them on that journey, um, being you know, being key factors that you know, this is the sort of thing that you guys just just do in, in any event. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah.
0: And talking about you guys specifically, my gender non-biased language there, mm-hmm. apologies for that. Internally, it's rated Cas cap at the moment in terms of it's nearly. Well, not quite at the beginning of the year anymore. Obviously, it feels like we're uh, this year has been going on forever already. But uh, in terms of twenty twenty one, you know, have you got maybe sort of uh, some maybe disclose any sort of priorities and objectives that you guys are working on for this year you know, in terms of moving forward? Um, you know, twenty twenty mm-hmm. was a big year. I'm sure twenty twenty one is going to be uh, just as big. Yeah, exactly. So I think for
1: us, you know, following following the client survey but also the demand that we're seeing from existing and new clients is to ensure that we're having really great high quality conversations with clients around sustainability and ensuring that every one of them has that conversation this year and that if if they want to that we move their investment mandates into onto something that reflects their preferences wherever they sit on that sustainable spectrum as a house we are 100 as you would expect ESG integrated so really this is just checking in with clients and making sure that that's enough for them or do they want to move into some of our our other product offerings which um, are much more focused around you know driving that sort of positive positive um, change piece on on people and the planet so we're making sure that we have that conversation each year so that's a priority um, the other priority is the reporting piece and um, that's as you can imagine taking up an awful lot of our time but it's great you know it's now automated in our systems and and we we think it's a real differentiator for us as an organisation and from a broader um, company perspective um, we are focusing very much on how we use our influence it's something that's been huge part of Schroeder's and Kasanov um, in terms of our sustainable investing um, and we're making sure that we engage with the companies and the third party managers that we invest in on issues that our clients care about and tell us they care about such as climate change, modern slavery um, and having been a co-founding signatory to the Net Zero um, Alliance um, and being a third party manager there's an awful lot of work for us to do and so that's a particular focus on the engagement side.
0: Oh, three, three, really quite interesting issues there. I mean, and on that net zero manager point, what's the you know, so it's a fair few signatories sort of over the course of twenty twenty? What's the what's, what's the impact um, for you guys a, a, about being being such a manager?
1: Yeah, so what it means is that we've um, that we've committed to transitioning our um, discretionary mandates to net zero, um, and that we are going to engage with our third party fund managers. Um, to actually do that, because although we are part of the Schroder's group, we are we are actually a significant investor in third party fund managers. So um, what we've done is, um, as a first step, we've contacted all 150 of the managers that we speak to, uh, that we invest through, and we've asked if they have intended to um, make a net zero commitment, and 50% of them have responded, and of those that have, have made a commitment already and 10% intend to make one before COP26 which you'll know this will be a big um, part of that and 62% are actually actively considering so there's only a minority around 14% who really haven't sort of started thinking about it. And so those initial findings are, we think, encouraging and we're going to continue to use our influence to push for that change. And we will start to um, share the results of that at the start of next year. And that's part of our formal net zero commitment action plan. So that's the sort of third party piece in terms of what Schroders itself is doing. um, Our CEO, Pete Harrison, has written a letter to the UK's largest companies asking them to publish detailed and fully costed transition plans on climate change. Um, initially, we've contacted companies in the FTSE 350, um, and we've offered to support them in the execution of their plans, but also made it clear that, uh, that, we, that we will be monitoring the progress closely. And so looking ahead, we, we hope to see that progress beyond the UK, and um, we'd like to see all medium and large companies, regardless of where they're listed, publish their plans. Um, we know that we've got a responsibility to do so as a, a member of the FTSE 350, and um, we'll therefore publish our own plans for transition, but um, whilst we've already heavily invested in this area we, we do recognize that our own journey is closer to the start than, than where in than the end but we're very committed to that journey so and we've committed to um transitioning assets working in partnership with our underlying asset managers and reporting to tcfd disclosures and publish an annual climate action plan from january 2020 so it's quite it's a big a big a big ask really a big task that, um, that we're working on
0: it is a big task isn't it i mean i, I say were asked one of those questions where there's you know, it's one of those there's only one answer really to on this one but mm-hmm. um in terms of the the, the pace of people change you said there that you know the percentages were interesting 14 mm. maybe only 14 percent hadn't given this some thought I remember when we uh we, we create or we drafted or published our green principles for private equity which is you know a different industry per se but and this is a while back now and we'd suggested that you know monitoring the carbon content and committing to reducing it or getting to zero and to some people that was a complete anathema you know this at the time i said well look you don't have to commit to this as a principle you know if you don't want to you can you know do government do your own thing but i very much suspect now if we were to go around and ask those same people that we had the conversations with at the time uh, their mind have been, you know, which which have changed quite completely. I think it's it's quite an interesting assessment of how quickly people's minds have changed on this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And on that, you know, I think it, I said contribute my own personal thoughts, so this my apologies, but that changing in mindset, I uh, think you alluded to in your client survey, um, is very much seems to me to be very much across the board, whether it's on mm-hmm. net zero, um, but are there any other areas you know, in terms of that you think you, know, that you that you see investors maybe changing their mindset i did a blog recently talking about that just that, you know, green finance was more now more about, about sustainability in general and sustainability being the, mm-hmm. the main thing and that brings in a whole host of different topics you know living wage you mentioned you know, women on boards of diversity mm-hmm. etc have you got any you know any other areas that you see you know when you first started off in the industry or maybe you know 12 months ago you wouldn't believe that these were serious topics.
1: Yeah so I think that sort of social piece is really going to be fundamental for um, investors engagement going forward and that that encompasses everything you've said around you know fair wages so um, modern slavery diversity I mean we've got engagement examples across all of those so um, over the past five years we have engaged with over 200 companies um, specifically on the topic of diversity we voted and it's a really important part of engagement that you don't just write letters that you actually vote (laughs) and so we um, have voted against um, management a number of times due to lack of progress around diversity initiatives and that's predominantly um, in the past I think being focused on gender, I think what we'll see going forward is that broader and diversity profile coming um, more into um, engagement strategies that's something that, that's certainly a focus in front of mind in terms of living wage I think we think that's really important I mean we supported an initiative led by the charity sector in the UK um, a few years ago now um, to promote living wage and we, we looked at key sectors at risk such as retail for example they're particularly key to this um, and what we did there you talked about how we sort of help others we we provided significant research and analysis as to the cost versus benefits you know so the the, the cost to companies are um, the, the increased salaries but they benefit from lower turnover of staff higher pro- productivity less sickness etc um, and that's actually um, embedded in our X assessment of companies now. So for example, we recently engaged with Whitbread who despite paying above minimum wage, haven't yet committed to living wage. So um, I think that's a, an area that we'll see um, shareholder pressure um, coming on in the coming years, especially with the just transition, et cetera. And that, I mean, I can give you quite a few Andy, but I mean, in terms of timing and things like that, but we've engaged very heavily on modern slavery as a result of COVID actually, because lots of people are stuck in bonded labor and as a signatory to the um, find it, fix it, prevent it as part of those efforts we wrote to companies across the C350 who weren't currently compliant with uh, the UK Modern Slavery Act for example and the objective of that engagement is to encourage companies to make required changes to their modern slavery statements. We've had really good success on that so we've been collaborating with that group, we've seen 15 out of 18 FTSE 350 companies now become compliant um, as a result of that, and we will monitor their changes, um, changes over the next 12 months and review. And that um, collaborative engagement success has been recognised and was shortlisted um, by the PRAI for an engagement award. So, that using influence is we haven't really touched on it in, in this podcast, but we see that as a fundamental way to really ge- generate impact, positive impact for, for people um, and the planet. And it's a hugely important part of what we do. Um, and it was highlighted as a weakness in the um, in the recent state of the sector report that was was launched this week by a number of charities.
0: Well, actually, good thing you're reminding me. But so I was going to ask you about that if you had any sort of key takeaways that you could perhaps flag up. Um, but I just come back to that point that you make there. We we touched on it. Um, so I think it's the first time we mentioned it on the podcast about COVID. I mean, has that has that had an impact in, in respect of any significant catalyst for change that you that, that you've seen?
1: I think around client awareness of issues, there is a definite, definite increase in the social side of things. And I think, I think from a broader perspective, if we look outward, um, you know, governments, investors, clients, everyone, the key actors that are needed to drive change seem to be mobilised just this year in, in a way that they haven't before. And I think that that, that is partially down to um, you know, the, 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 pan, the current pandemic. And the realisation that there's something worse on the horizon, which is climate change, and we need to we need to sort that out.
0: Okay, and and again, you just to come back to it, then you 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 mentioned that this the the state of the sector that you've been examining, good and bad practices. Um, Have you got any um, takeaways or highlights that you'd like to share? Some key learning points. I mean, I just referred to one, but Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: so um, that. The State of the Sector report was actually issued by three charities independently of Casanova. So they were the Friends Provident Foundation of Grade Trust and Joffe. Um, and the State of the Sector report which they released um, was their assessment of a public tender process that they went through last year to select an investment manager who could deliver them financial returns which were both aligned um, with, with the returns they needed but also their charitable mission and you may have seen it, they got a reasonable amount of um, coverage in the FT, it was the so-called ESG Olympics. Um, so What happened in that process is that the charities had 59 submissions um, from small boutique high impact asset managers right through to global investment banks who had trillions of assets under management. So for me the absolute highlight of that webinar on Monday is that Casanova appointed as the winner um, and awarded the mandate but, um, but seriously we were absolutely delighted yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> I like, well, yeah,
0: to you up on that one. Right?
1: <laughs> you did a bit there. Um, so we, we were absolutely delighted to be appointed to manage that mandate but in a very collaborative um, collaborative way, so we will be working with those charities on key issues around, around those, some of those social issues that we just discussed earlier, um, so they will be holding us to a very high account in that regard. But the overall assessment of those charities of the sector was that the, the, yes, the ESG is very poor relation to the environment, and um, they also highlighted quality and transparency and urgency of engagement was pretty weak to non-existent across many asset managers and that there was far too much reliance on signing up to and becoming signatories of initiatives with very little follow-through and action and very little evidence of change. I think in particular um, one area that Colin Baines highlighted that stuck with me is that This whole divest invest argument was really they found disingenuous because less than 5% of asset managers who quoted remaining heavily invested in fossil fuels because they wanted to drive that industry to change actually had no real evidence of actually doing so. I mean, I think it's a great report. i really recommend it for anyone who's looking to appoint an investment manager because it really helps you understand what good looks like in the industry and how to weed out, you know, people who are doing things well versus those who are have poor practice.
0: As you said, that'd be um, probably helpful if we can get that on our show notes, quite frankly, and help and help yeah, people too. Should. Cause like, I completely <laughs> agree, it'd be really useful to read the report. And I you know, Totally concur with some of the comments that you make. I mean, unfortunately, broad, we'll be broadcasting this, so I'll, I won't be able to say my views on certain uh, practices, certain managers, uh, for, for reasons of litigation. You know, what the, 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 the reality and the reality of certain uh, of certain is um, is galling. But um, oh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, so, and talking of which, I mean, looking forward to that. But um, one final question, we might have to go back and. So look, looking forward to this because it's, it's actually. It's almost, I was going to say, looking forward to the end there, but that's I've, I've got myself into minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean so that's that at all. I that. But actually, I am looking forward to this final question because I always like to ask my all my guests this, and um, and it's always it's always nice to get that personal angle, and particularly people that nowadays like to know about you know a little bit of the, people's backstory, how come they, you know, how do they get to to where where they are now. How did you end up working on this agenda in in the first place? What was your motivation to it?
1: Sure. So I think um, I'm probably not the typical socio-economic background um, when you look at investment management. So a quick scan of my LinkedIn profile will show you very quickly that I didn't actually go to university. Shock, horror. Um, I went straight out to work. And um, I had to be... I know awful. Um, I'd had, a, a, um, to be candid, a pretty fragmented start in life having moved around between various care providers etc but what that actually meant is that I didn't really do as well at school as perhaps my capabilities um, could could have delivered and I think I've spent a very long 20 plus years, I can't quite believe that, rectifying that. Um, so I spent most of my 20s and 30s studying for various qualifications. I became one of the first females who were uh, um chartered fi- uh, chartered financial planner when that was um first um, launched And when I was on maternity leave, um, I had my career great with my, my lovely children. I actually did the CISI Masters in Wealth Management, you know, desperately trying to repair that sort of early um, you know, early missed education. And um, I'm, I'm really proud of what I achieved, actually, relative to where I started out. But working in finance, whether that happened to me through luck or judgment, and I hope it was judgment, and it's absolutely changed my life and the outlook and the prospects for my children. And I think what those lived experiences have taught me is one very ba- valuable lesson. And that's if you want to see change at scale, you really need to change the system. And I think much of what we do in society is very reactionary. We spend trillions globally on sticking plaster treatments, whether that's through how government spends our taxes, how we invest our capital, how people give money away to charity. And I think this pandemic is a real wake up call for us all that ignoring root causes comes back to bite you both financially and socially Um, and and that's really why you know that's what drives me that's why I'm dedicated to working in this specific field of sustainable and impact investing and also I also have performed another old chasm around and I head up our philanthropy offering and what I really hope to achieve through that um, importantly through I hope as shown today through advocacy and evidence rather than evangelism, is that we want to help our clients. We want to give back to society to, to look at the total impact of all that's their assets, whether that's their investment portfolio or their grant making.
0: Well, Lynn, thanks very much for sharing that. I, mean, I, don't, want to, I don't want to sound patronising the way this comes across, but you uh, really heard a genuine, you genuine, know, the emotion of the, and the commitment in there, but, you know, the, the way your backstory is turned into. You know this, the, what you do today, and how you have taken sort of the values that you've you've created from a from an individual perspective into something about bringing broader benefits to the society. Like I said, I'm just a bit patronising there, but I think the, the genuineness of your commitment there really just come across. I think it's a for me listening to, um, to, to you today is it's that genuineness of the commitment that really came across for the whole of our conversation today. Um, you know, particularly with, you know, I've been showing you for a long time now, so I'm well aware of that, the, 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 the integrity and the genuineness of this commitment to sustainability. Um, you know, and, and, and it's great to hear from the top down that, that, sort of that using the, the power of, uh, of capital and capitalism and, and, that, and particularly private capital. Uh, for as a force for you know social good you mentioned it earlier you know that 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 letter writing the 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 not coercion is probably the, the pejorative word but that using the influence indirectly to to be more than just a pure financial return i think it really did come across from from the conversation that you that you um we had today, and the other for me to take away, we'll come back to it in terms of you know that exposition and explanation of how you know incorporation and consideration of all of these sustainable and ESG factors in you know, materially where they have a pecuniary impact is actually completely consistent with the with our traditional notion of fiduciary duty, um, and so therefore you know quite frankly closing that loop, being a force for global good is, you know, is integral to, you know, uh, discharging one's fiduciary duty. So I'd like to say thank you very much and that was, a, that was a really great, um, you know, 40, 40 minutes there, and it, it really was. I'm sure, you know, if people do, should please do go to the show notes, we'll make sure that we get that uh, report on the webinar there. Really, okay. good. thank you very much for your time again today, Lynn. it was really, really interesting to hear your insights.
1: Right, so, it's always a pleasure, a always a pleasure. <laughs>
0: No, you were great, and you and it was in sense of step. I remember when we had the step webinar for Asia, and it was like, oh, you know, there's there's so much more that we can have a conversation about. So I really do appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: So we we had a. Back catalogue of interviews just remains to be said and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. So just to say to our listeners, check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. We're delighted to say we're a top 10 podcast as uh, as awarded in January. You'll also be able to find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. And we also will have links to Lindsay and Cousin social media in our show notes. And so do check those out to him more from Lynn and Kaz and Schroders. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Going to Green Find podcast. Thank you.